This morning we're going to be looking, I hope we can get through it all, but we're going to go through chapter 8. Chapter 8 is kind of a unit. It doesn't break down well into paragraphs. So um, uh, we're going to try to do the... Uh, We're going to try to do the whole chapter. Uh, In chapter 7, he introduced the idea that the the law had to be changed, that there had to be a a change in the covenant relationship because there's been a change in the priesthood. Uh, Chapter 8 talks about that new covenant. It talks about its its necessity and, and talks about how... Why, why the old had to be replaced to give some, some background to that. It's going to be expanded more in, in nine and, uh, and, and following, uh, as he does, as he does with everything else. He introduces something here and then he brings it back up here and then he gives a full explanation of it down the road. So that's, uh, that's pretty much the way this text is going to go as well. And I, I kind of broke it down this way. And I, everything, everything in Hebrews is around the, the, the Greek word that literally means better. They usually, they usually translate it more excellent, superior. They, they try to fancy it up, but the Greek word is better. That's, that's the word. So I tried to be a little more literal, and I said it's Jesus' better covenant. And then it talks about his sanctuary, talks about him as mediator, and it talks about the covenant. Uh, that is put in put into place, and that's kind of the way I outlined I outlined the text this morning. So uh, before we get there, before we get into the text, uh, uh, just so you know, I won't be here next week. Brandon will be taking the class for me. I kind of like doing that, and it keeps the consistency of the class. Although the teacher is different, but it also gives you know he's he's in the middle of his studies at masters and and uh, is. Moving in his advancement here at the church as well into a, an interim position. And uh, as a result of that, those guys need the opportunity. So, so support him. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Cheer him on, if you will. And uh, 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 the reason I won't be here is I'm having cataract surgery next week. So I'm not sure my eyes could take doing this. So on Thursday, I'm having surgery. And then I, I also have a prayer request for Kathy. She's got uh, two, two appointments, one next week, the day before my surgery, and then the following week. Um, a few years back, she fell, broke her wrist, kind of messed herself up. She's been having a lot of trouble with her right shoulder, and uh, hopefully they're going to do an MRI on it and see if they can figure out what's wrong with it. She's in a lot of pain. It keeps her up at night. And then... She's also having some cognitive issues, so they're going to test her for that. So those those uh, those things are going on with us. So are there any other prayer requests? Pray for Danny. He's been really sick all week. Oh, yeah. Is he? No. Oh, he's he's having a battle with that. Yeah. Can I ask you to open this, Bob? <coughs> and blessing upon them, Lord, in, in the coming days and weeks as they go through various different health issues. Just pray that uh, your will would be done in each of their lives. And just pray again for this time together, that it would be a blessing, and that we do 
Uh, I appreciate the, the part of your prayer toward being clear and understanding because I'm not sure I <laughs> can even remember what I've studied. But anyway, anyway, here we go. Here we go. Uh, chapter 8, ver- we'll look at verses 1 and 2 to begin with. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy place in the true tent that the Lord has set up, not man. And there's some very significant uh, uh, items that he's saying here. He, first of all, he's saying, the point of what I said in chapter 7, that's, that's really what he's saying here. Of course, the, you, you realize some monk put the chapter and verse in. The, the guys didn't write it that way. So it would just flow right out of, right out of 7, actually. He goes, here's the point. Here's the point I want to make. Uh, the point I want to make is this, that our high priest, Jesus is one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. Once again, he's back to Psalms 110, verse 1 this time, his kingship. And that's, that's a, a, one of the important features about Jesus as high priest. He's not only a high priest, he is a king. <clears throat> and uh, uh, that's, that's, a, that's, that's one of the things that he's, he's pointing out here. Our king priest, that's the point I'm trying to make. That his current position as high priest is in heaven. That's where he is. He is in the true sanctuary in heaven. That's what, that's what the author is wanting us to understand here. Uh, that's, the, that's the point. He's at the right hand of majesty, which means he's the right hand of God, uh, 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 in heaven. Uh, Hebrews 1 told us the, this same idea to begin with. Uh, in Hebrews 1, chapter 3. In Hebrews 1, chapter 13. Of course, it all comes out of Psalms 110, uh, uh, 110, 1. In chapter 10, verse 12, he's going to tell us again. He's going to say, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. That's, that's the thrust that he wants us to understand. The work of salvation is complete in Christ. He took his seat at the right hand of God. That's the idea. He is seated. It's a verb. It means to sit down. Uh, literally, that's what it means. It says, he sat down. He took his seat. That's, that's what it means. Uh, and, it's, and in the ancient Near East, this is a very significant idea because the kings in those days, they were seated on, you've probably seen pictures even of medieval times, you know, the king is seated on the throne, and there's somebody standing on his right and somebody standing on his left. They were usually standing, uh, you know, and they were his number two and number th- number one and number two guy, I guess you would say, uh, you know, and basically they carried, they carried the authority of the king, and the guy on the right was the important one. He was the one, he was, he was number two in charge. That's, that's the idea here. And, and what this is saying, what this is saying is that Jesus is not only at the right hand of God, but he's seated. That's significant. He is seated. It means a completed, finished work. He has done what he's supposed to do, and he's in the position of authority at this point. That, that's the idea here. Now, it's kind of interesting because it says he's at the throne of God. Have you ever dealt with a Jehovah Witness? Yes. Come to your door. You know, they don't believe in a trinity. You want to really mess them up? <laughs> Give them the following verses. 
They're all from Revelation. Well, I'm not going to give them all to you. But anyway, uh, there's one in chapter 4, verse 2, and verse 10, and 5, 1, uh, and 7, 13, 13, uh, uh, and 13, 6, 16, 7, 10, and 15, and 19, 4, and 21, 15. And then you take with those verses, and you give them, you give them, 1, 4 through 5, 3, 21, 7, 15 through 17, and 12, 5. And what you find out is there is one throne in God, but yet it says who sits on it. God, and the second list I gave you, is Jesus. But there's only one throne. It's singular. That, that's the picture here. That's the picture. Jesus is set it on, seated on the throne. That's, that's the point that he's driving home. He is the one in control. He's in, he's in charge. And you notice that this throne is in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle. In Israel, the high priest could enter the, that, that refers to, that would, in the temple mound, that would, that would refer to the Holy of Holies, the tabernacle in the wilderness, behind the curtain in the, tabern, in the tabernacle. That was the idea. It's the place where the glory of God resided. And the, the high priest could only go in there at very limited uh, to going in there. Only one man, one time, for a short time, they tied a rope around his leg in case he did anything wrong so they could get his body out. You know, it was, it was, it was serious business. But this is saying Jesus walked into the sanctuary and he sat down on the throne. This is, this is a position of power, of authority, of majesty. That's, that's, that's the thrust that it, they're wanting us to understand here. Uh, he took away the curtain and made access for us as well. Uh, Hebrews has already told us about that. He's going to re- reiterate that again upcoming. Uh, and and uh, 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 in Leviticus, Leviticus 16.2 tells us that God's throne is in the tabernacle behind the curtain at that time. But Revelation Revelation sixteen seventeen says, "Out of the temple came a loud voice, saying, uh, from the th- from his throne, saying, it is done.' Uh, that's at the end of the tribulation period. Uh, it's it's finished. Uh, the point is the throne. That's the that's the thrust here. Uh, Jesus is not only a high priest, but he is king. Those are those are the things that." Uh, 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 those are the things that we are to understand. And, and then we are to note that it is a better tabernacle, the one that is in heaven. It's the true tabernacle. That's where Jesus serves, not, not the man-made one on earth. Uh, just kind of three points that come out of this is that, that Jesus serves in the sanctuary. And it's better because only the, uh, only the high priest who was able to ascend to heaven, who was appointed by an oath, can serve in that in that temple, and that's 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 the point that's being made here. Jesus is unique, and the t- where he where he is is a unique place. He serves in the true tabernacle. That's what he's saying here. Nine eleven. He's going to tell us this. He says. He says. <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> but when Jesus appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, then through uh, then. Though the greater and more per, uh, through the greater and more perfect tent, uh, made not made with hands. That is not of this creation. His tabernacle is not of this creation. It wasn't made by men. The tabernacle in the wilderness was. It was made by men. 
And he's saying here, that's not where Jesus serves. That's, that's not his place. That's not where he serves. Uh, in verse 24, it goes on to say, uh, chapter 9, uh, verse 24, it goes on to say, For Christ has entered into the holy place, made with... Uh, um, for Christ has entered not into the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true thing, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. This is starting to already reintroduce the mediation role of Jesus. Uh, he appears on our behalf. Uh, the, uh, the high priest of Israel appeared on behalf of Israel. One day, one time, in a man-made temple on the earth. Here he's in heaven. He's in heaven in a non-man-made temple, the true tabernacle. Uh, Jesus serves as a high priest of of that tabernacle, of that true tabernacle. Now, (laughs) I can't talk in Tabernacle. Uh, He serves as the the high priest of it. Moses, Moses only had a copy of the tabernacle, which was shown to him by God. Exodus chapter 25, verses 9 and 40. The tabernacle was on earth. The true is in heaven. Uh, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated upon a throne, high, lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. This is the idea. This is the vision Jesus, or, or Isaiah saw of God sitting on a throne in the true tabernacle. That's... That's the idea he wants, and he goes on to talk about all the angel order that is around him. Uh, Micah 1-2 also reiterates this same idea. After his atoning work here on earth, after he was put to death on the cross, buried and arose, he ascended through the heavens to the true tabernacle, where he now represents God's people. That's, that's, what, uh, that's what he's saying. This is the point. That's what he's saying. This is the point I want you to understand. This is what Jesus does. This is where he is. So, John, do you think it's set up the same way in the tabernacle here with all like the different elements? Do you think it has the three parts? The... No. I think, it's just... I think uh, we're going to get to that, actually, in this next section. Oh, yeah. But, but uh, uh, we, the text of Scripture doesn't really tell us. Yeah. It obviously doesn't have a curtain. Right. You know, right. it obviously uh, it uh, obvi- I don't think it has a, a mercy seat in the sense of the mercy seat in the true temple, because the mercy seat of that temple is the throne of God. Right. Okay. So because what he's going to call them is shadows and patterns mm-hmm. of the true. So do I think they're exact? No. Do I know what they look like? No. Yeah. yeah. Now, a guy named John, the apostle, he might. Yeah, he would know. <laughs> but. Yeah, wrong. And, and unfortunately, he's not here to tell us. So he told us a little bit about it. But anyway, anyway yeah, that's a good point, though. Yeah, it's, we're going to look at that now. He's going to call them shadows and uh, copies and shadows is, is what he's going to call. And we'll we'll try to try to explain that as best I can. Anyway, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Uh, we're at verse 3. Uh, verse 4, now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since they, were, uh, they, they are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. 
For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry which is much more excellent than the old the old covenant he met he mediates uh, it, the covenant he mediates is better uh, since he 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 since it is enacted on better promises so that's where we want to go next in this next section so first the first thing he says is for every high priest yeah so is there the the verse that you gave us earlier and it kind of goes with what you're talking about there um, it says, uh, make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. So is there, uh, is there a time when God provides a vision for Moses? Yeah, we're going to talk about that. Okay. Exodus chapter okay. 20, after 25. Okay, but I'm looking at 25 and I don't see the Well, there's more, it's more, it's in more, it's in more other places too. Right. More Thank other, you. more other places. Uh, anyway, it's in other places. Okay. It's in more places in Exodus and Numbers and. Okay. Thank you. Uh, for every uh, for every high priest, and what this points to is the Aaronic priesthood was an endless succession of priests. They served they served for a limited time. Uh, they didn't serve eternally. Obviously, Aaron's still not walking around, uh, and none of his sons are. Uh, they they serve for they serve for a limited amount of time, and they followed one after the other. There was a succession of them, and that contrast our high priest, who is singular. A single high priest, which we've already, he's already discussed this. That, that's one of the significant differences. He's an eternal high priest. Uh, there, is no, there is no need for any other or any additional priest. It's just him. And not only is he a priest, he is also a king. All this comes out of Psalms, the, pro, the promises that, uh, that were delivered through Psalms. And it, here, and it says here that he doesn't serve an earthly temple. He serves... He serves, <clears throat> excuse me, he serves the true temple, the true tabernacle. And then he, they contrast the offerings. He says, they, it says here that uh, there were continual offerings. The, the priesthood of Aaron could only cover sin, and basically it lasted a year. It had to be repeated over and over again. And there wasn't just the Day of Atonement. There was a whole series of, of sacrifices that went on. They went on all the time. People brought individual gifts and offerings and sacrifices for individual misdeeds. And there, there's a whole list of things if you go through um, uh, Leviticus especially, uh, but also in Numbers and, and uh, in Exodus and, and in Deuteronomy. And they list all these things that sacrifices were, 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 uh, were to be given for. Uh, but here, and this is interesting... When it when it says when it when it uses the word, it says for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary that this priest also have something to offer. Now, in English, there's it says offer twice. In Greek, it doesn't. It has two different words. It has two different words. They both have the concept of offer, but the the former. Is is in a in a, is in a uh, context that says it's a continual offering, over and over and over. 
That's, that's what this, the, the structure of that Greek word in the context says. It's a continual offering. It's not a one-time thing. The other offer is a singular event. It's a singular event. So this points to the crucifixion. It points to the single event of Jesus giving himself as an offering for our sin. Where the other one is the continual offerings that couldn't take sin away, but only cover it. But only cover it. So there he's contrasting. He's doing a, and this is a series of contrasts, incidentally. He's contrasting the offerings. He's saying, he's saying the Aaronic priesthood, they gave offerings all the time. They covered sin for a little while. Jesus, on the other hand, made one offering. It was a singular event. It doesn't get repeated because it has no necessity to be repeated. It accomplished the task. That's, that's the idea that's being expressed here. And then in verse 4, he goes on in verse 4. <clears throat> excuse me. Now, if we were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. In other words, he didn't follow the earthly pattern for being a priest. Jesus wasn't of the line of Levi. He was of the line of Judah. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that, or in the law, excuse me, in the law, does it say the high priest can be taken out of Judah. So he wouldn't have been a high priest in the earthly sense of the line of Aaron. That's, that's the first thing he says. Uh, he wouldn't be a priest. But... Because they offered gifts according to law. In other words, their gifts were according to law. That's, that's the idea here. It, there was all these prescribed offerings. That's what they did. What they brought were the prescribed offerings under the law. And, and, but, he, but he says that's not the case with Jesus. Uh, Jesus was not a priest under the law or a priest on earth. He serves, as we've already looked at this, he serves as, as, as he serves in heaven and he was appointed by oath. Not by genealogy. That's, he's kind of reiterating that here, and he says that. Uh, he says he, he, that isn't who Jesus was. Uh, uh, he had an offering. The offering was himself. It wasn't the endless line of bulls and goats and lambs and whatever, turtle doves and on and on and on. It was, it was, it was himself. And it was once and for all, and it finished. It was finished with him. And he was appointed a high priest by the oath of God, by the word of God and by the oath of God. And verse 5 goes on to say, and then we're going to get into this whole copy and, and shadow here. He says, he says, they served as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, seeing that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So here it says, the service and the buildings... And the pattern of the tabernacle, which he's going to contrast in verse 4, uh, um, he, he's, he's got, he, he says there's, there's three things about them. First of all, they're, co- they're copies and shadows. Uh, these two words are complementary, but they have a little different meaning. Copy, copy refers to the substance, the substance of the buildings, the substance of, of what was made. And, sh- and shadow ref- um, is, is a, it speaks to the effect of, they're, they're a reflection of the original. That's, that's the idea here. So what he is saying is, is they are, 
They are both a reflection, like if you were standing here and the sun's on you and your shadow's out there, you're, you're reflected. They're, they're like that. They're a reflection of what is in heaven, but they have, rather than a shadow, which is just whatever a shadow is, uh, anyway, anyway, it has no substance. It says this has substance. It has substance to it. There, there is something, something actually physically there as well. It's a shadow of something that is true and real, but it also has has a construct to it. It has it has some substance to it. That's the copy. That's the co- so it's a copy. It's not the original. That's really it. It pictures it pictures it pictures the heavenly heavenly original casting a shadow. Now I will say I don't I don't want to carry this too far, but shadows don't really all that much look like you. You know, they kind of look a little different. They're, they're just a shadow. Uh, but this one has some construct to it. So I don't know how far you can take that into, into because the, the text just doesn't tell us that much about it. Uh, but it's, these shadows have substance. The earthly tabernacle was li- limited in that it was nothing more than a copy. The sacrifices then were a shadow. That's really what he's saying here. It, it went on there. There's a copy of the temple, and, the, and, it was, and what he's telling us is the temple and all the sacrifice system was a type pointing to something else. That's, that's really what he's telling us here. All of this stuff was there to point us to the true sacrifice, to the true temple, to the true high priest. That's what it was all for. It was it was a it was a arrow pointing to Jesus. That's that's the idea here. Look at nine verses twenty three and twenty four. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better were uh, with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is entered into the holy place. May, uh, uh, not, uh, not uh, for Christ has not entered. I keep leaving the not out of this verse. I've done that every time I've read it in the last week, uh, but I don't know why. Uh, Christ has entered not into a holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true, true thing, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. You understand, the other was just a copy. He went to the real. That's what he's telling us here. So first, so that's the first thing he says. Uh, and then he, he, he tells us that uh, Moses was told to erect a tent. That was the tabernacle in the wilderness. Eventually they build the temple under, under Solomon. Moses, uh, Moses uh, was, was given instructions on what he was do, to do. We don't know all that was given in those instructions, but we have some of the things that were given in those instructions. For example, in Exodus twenty-five forty, he tells them, speaking of the lampstands that were to be in the, be in the uh, uh, in the in the tabernacle, he says, "And see to it that you make them after the pattern for the uh, for 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 them which is being shown to you on the mountain." In other words, on the mountain, he gave Moses specific instructions. They were detailed, obviously, because not only did they just talk about how the tent was to be made, where things were to be laid out within it, but the specific um, pieces that were to be installed in the temple, he was told how they were to be made. Now, are there lampstands just like this in heaven? Maybe, but I don't know. Uh, And we really don't know. 
but but the idea here is they were made after a pattern instructed by God. Exodus twenty six verse thirty. He says, "Then you shall you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for." Um, <clears throat> For that was, uh, that was shown to you on the mountain. So once again, on the mountain he showed them, this is the layout of the tent. This is how it's to be laid out. This is where it's, I'm here. This is, he gave instruction on what it's to be made out of. He gave a lot of instruction there. Uh, in verse, in, cha- in ta- chapter 27 of Exodus, verse 8, he says, Make the altar hollow out, uh, out of boards. It is to be made just as you were shown on the mountain. In other words, the altar itself. He gave him how it was to be made and the materials it was to be made out of. In Numbers 8, 4, uh, again, speaking of the lampstands, he says, They were made exactly after the pattern shown to Moses. So Moses complied. So what we know is he was given very inspired very specific instructions, detailed instructions on how the tabernacle was to be made. How they correspond directly to heaven, I can't really say, but I suspect they do. Uh, I suspect they do very much. So he, he, says, he says, then it was a pattern, and he quotes, quotes again from Exodus 25, 40, uh, Acts, in Acts 7, 44, Which, of course, is right in the speech that Stephen gives right before they martyr him. He says, Our fathers had the tent of, of witness in the wilderness, just as he, he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. It's reiterated in the New Testament that that is the in in the in in Acts under Stephen. That's one of the things he says to him. They had the tabernacle. It was made exactly the way God told him to be made. But it's a pattern. It's not the it's not the the it's not the original. It's a copy. Nine eleven tells us, chapter nine, verse eleven tells us. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, then through, uh, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made of hands, that is not of this creation. That's the point. Where he is, is not of this creation. It's not the, it's not the temple that Moses built. It didn't get translated to, get to heaven. Uh, he serves in the true temple. That's what he wants us to know. He serves in the in the in the real temple, the the true temple, not a shadow, not a copy, but the true. I hope that kind of answers the question as best we can. Uh, at any rate, that's uh, that's where we are. Now he goes to verse six. Now understand something. I'll talk about the structure here of this this text. It goes three, four, six. Five is kind of an insert that he put in to give us some added detail. The flow of the text, if you took that out, it still flows. Now, that doesn't mean, don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm not telling you to remove it from your Bible. It's the Word of God, just like all the rest of the verses here. It's just the way it's inserted. Uh, I, uh, I uh, heard a, I don't know how true this is, but... Uh, uh, I heard this from somebody one time that there was this guy, this older man who was about to about to leave this planet, and uh, he belonged to a church that had a rather liberal pastor, and so he uh, called the pastor to come and pray with him because he knew he was he was going he was going to die, 
And uh, he asked the pastor to read from his Bible to him. And, of course, the guy did. And he picked up the Bible, and his Bible was just ripped to shreds. I mean, it had pages torn out. It had whole books torn out. It had all kinds of stuff cut up in it. And the pastor was just aghast. You know, he goes, what did you do to this Bible? And he says, well, I did what you said. Every time you said, well, that isn't really the word of God, I took it out. I'm not telling you that. Okay. My, my, uh, my aunt, who uh, stayed in the Methodist church most of her life, uh, I, was, I don't know, it, when you heard the one speaker kind of giving his testimony, that was my testimony. Exactly. Raised in the Methodist church, left as a teenager, went to evangelistic meeting, got saved. And, you know, I thought, <laughs> anyway, anyway, uh, anyway, uh, uh, their pastor, they, she told me one day, she looked at me and she says, you know, we're, we've got a new pastor. We're going to study the book of Jonah. And I went, oh, great. And he goes, but you know, our pastor said it was just a myth. It wasn't true. And I looked at her and I said, then why are you going to study it? Right. You know, and she kind of, huh? You know, anyway. But, but anyhow, I'm way off track now. Verse 5 belongs right where it is, because that's where the Holy Spirit wants it. But the flow of the text, so that you kind of get the flow of the text, it reads like this. Now, if we, verse 4, now if we were on earth, we would not, he, now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Uh, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law... But, as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry which is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since he, uh, since he is enacted, since it is enacted on better promises. That's the flow. In other words, they offered these gifts, but he mediates this covenant. You know, in the, in the middle it was, everything they did were shadows and copies, just to kind of give a more explanation. That's really what he's doing here. So now we're, we're dealing with Christ and his, his service. And basically what he's saying here is Christ has obtained a ministry which is much more excellent. It's better. That's the idea here. He, and you notice the word better in this translation is used a few times in here, a couple of times. He says, because he mediates a better one. It's more excellent than the old. He mediates a new. That's, that's, what he's, that's what he's going to tell us here. Uh, since it was enacted, because it's enacted on better promises. That's, that's the idea that he wants us to understand. It's enacted on better promises. It's a better covenant because it's enacted on better promises. And he mediates that better covenant. That's the idea here. You understand, mediate and being a high priest are kind of the same thing. They're synonymous. The high priest of the Aaron line, he was the one who represented Israel before God. That's what he did. That means to me, that's what mediate means. That's the idea. He becomes a representative for you, just like, you know, in labor conflicts, they bring in a mediator. He's a guy that represents people between the two parties. That's, that's the idea here. Uh, that's about as close to a labor conflict as this comes. But anyway, uh, he, he mediates. That's the idea. He mediates. And as high priest, that's what he does. And the covenant that he mediates is better because it was enacted on promises. That's the idea that he's going to, that he's going to give us here. Uh, the word ministry refers to that work of mediation within the temple. Uh, and uh, it's not based on a series of sacrifices. It's based on Christ. 
uh, he finished it. It's once and for all the work that is uh, uh, that is uh, mediated here has already been talked spoken of back in chapter seven, verse twenty-five. He saves to the uttermost, and in doing so, he intercedes for believers continually. That's the mediation process that he does. In other words, his sacrifice was sufficient to save. Nothing else is added. It's that and that alone. It's all based in, in the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the point that's being, being expressed here. And as such, as our mediator between us and God, any charge that might come against you is automatically dismissed because of his mediation. My blood covered that, ultimately, is, is what, what we have being expressed here. That's, that's what the author is saying. You know, no, he didn't offer these endless sacrifices of animals. He, saw, he offered himself, and as a result, he mediates a covenant that is taken care of, that saves to the uttermost. It's, it's finished. That's, that's the idea here. Uh, this speaks of security uh, that we have. Um, uh, we're held in the hand of God, and we are held in the hand of Jesus, John 10. And that's, that's, the, that's the idea that is being expressed here. Uh, he wants us to understand that. It, it includes this whole idea of, uh, of uh, being saved to the uttermost completely at all times to perfection. We talked about that last week. That's what that word means. Uh, it's, it's a done and finished item. But he mediates that so that if any charge comes, it's dismissed. So now we move on to, uh, to the new covenant. Verse 7. I am really praying that after this surgery on Thursday, when I look at the words, I actually see what's there. Instead of the fuzzy blur that I'm looking at, maybe I'll read better. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed, them no, I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law into their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each, um, each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sin no more. In speaking, the, in, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to vanish away. So he now introduces this whole new covenant. Of course, the quote is Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. That's where the quote comes from, um, and and uh, he will give that quote again in chapter 10, uh, only he's only going to give part of it in chapter 10, uh, verses 16 through 17. And, and he's basically telling us that the Old Covenant 
is being replaced by the new covenant. Uh, that's, that's the idea that he's expressing here. Uh, it's, it's an unfulfilled conditional sentence, really, uh, that he's saying here. He's, he's, basically, he's basically, in a sense, asking a rhetorical question. He's going, if the old covenant did everything that needed to be done, what would be the necessity of replacing it? And the fact that it's going to be replaced tells us it didn't. That's, that's what he's letting you know. That's what he's talking about, false. He's not talking about here that somehow the law was insufficient or that the law wasn't, or God didn't get it right in the law. That's, that's not what he's expressing here. Uh, it was right. It had, it had full importance. We don't have time to delineate chapter 7 of Romans, but if you want to read how Paul views the law and how the law worked, read chapter 7 of Romans. And then you can also pick up uh, 9, 10, and 11 on how it related to Israel and to the church down the road in, in, in Romans. He, he does a lot of, of teaching about the law. And, uh, and he's, he's, saying, uh, he's basically saying here, if it had... If it, uh, He's, he's saying that it was inadequate to accomplish what needed to be accomplished, but it, was, but it was that way by design. Paul tells us what the law did was tell us what sin was. That's what, it, that's what Paul tells us in chapter 7. He says, I wouldn't have known what sin was if it hadn't been for the law. I wouldn't have known what covetousness was if it hadn't have been for the law. That's, that's what he says. And then I realized the state I was in. That, that's, the, that's the task of the law. And, and, the, and, the, and, he, and he says, and, the, uh, and he's not saying that, uh, that, that it wasn't the word. Uh, Jesus coming in ministry brought a fulfillment of the promises. That, that's really the idea here. Uh, in fact, Paul says in chapter 7, verse 12, he says, So the law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. And you need to understand that. This is not, this is not in any way uh, putting a black mark on the Old Testament. You know, the law was holy. The commandments are holy. Uh, my uh, Old Testament, one of my Old Testament profs in seminary said that if you were going to have the Old Testament introduction, prof, you know, not introduction, survey. The Old Testament survey prof said you could name Leviticus how sinful man lives in the presence of holy God. That's, that's how you could name this. Well, that's what it is. This is what it takes for mi- sinful men to live in the presence of a holy God. The problem is they can't do it. That is the problem. That's why Jesus came. That was the necessity of the new covenant. That's what, he, that's what he's wanting them to understand here. It was necessary to change the contract. You understand Covenant simply means contract. In our terms, it's a contract. It's an agreement between two parties. It has conditions and it has stipulations. Not unlike the mortgage on your house. You know, you can have this house as long as you make X amount of dollars of payments for so many years. That's, there's probably more stipulations than that. But anyway, that's, that's the basic outline. Uh, God made a contract. Sir. Why did he wait so long between the old covenant and the new? 
I can't answer that question other than to say, the New Testament says, in the fullness of time, Jesus was born. It was at his time. He sets the time. And then you have to remember, too, there's a scripture that says, for God, a day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years is like a day. So to God, it was a wink. To you and me, it seems like, why did he wait so long? <laughs> it's like, you know, it's like, okay, you know, I, I, I think back, you, you, you kind of think, well, this, this room has a, a wide range of ages in it, right? Well, some of us who have, have reached seven plus decades are looking back and going, thinking back to when we were in our 20s and thinking, well, didn't think I would ever get here. You know, and then on the other hand, we think, but it seems like yesterday I was 20. You know, that's how time is related to us. It's not related to an eternal God that way. You know, uh, he tells us that our life is just a whisper in the in the eternity that uh, that uh, that he has. So, you know, I can't answer what God's timing was, but in his sovereignty, that's the way he planned it. And and he and according to the New Testament, he did it right exactly when the time was right. I, that's the best I can answer that. You know, when all else fails, you declare the sovereignty of God and you move on. That's the nice thing about being a Calvinist. You can always go to the sovereignty of God. Anyway. Yeah, because God said so. <laughs> that solves the problem. Okay, now I forgot where I was. Oh, anyway, and, and, then, and then just to just to drive the point maybe home a little bit more that the old covenant wasn't evil, it wasn't bad, because when Jesus walked on this earth and he gave the, the, the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, he reiterated the law and he made it even stronger. He said, you know, he said things like, Looking at a woman with lust is the same thing as adultery. The penalty for adultery was death. Think about that one for a moment in today's world of pornography and so on, and TV commercials, for that matter. i got to tell you, there's a, there's a little side note. Ladies, maybe you understand them. I do not get perfume commercials. They make absolutely no sense to me at all. There's no connect between what I see and what they're advertising. Anyway. If you wear this perfume, you will be sexy. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, but there's nothing really all that about the commercial. It's some... Anyway, anyway. And men's cologne commercials are worse. Yes, they yes. are. But any, anyway. <laughs> but, the, but what we have here is a change in the means of reception. That's, that's what we have. Is that we're going to contrast the way the old covenant was received and the way the new covenant is received. That's, that's really what's going to happen as we come on through here. Because he's, he's going to say eventually is the old covenant was a written document. The new covenant is put in our minds and hearts. Mm-hmm. 
And of course, that has to do with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But, but that, that's that's the construct here. So, so we're going to look at the the contracts themselves here for just a moment. Now, once again, a covenant is just a contract. It's an arrangement between two parties. It contains it contains conditions and stipulations. And the parties are in verse uh, verse eight b. He says, "Behold, the days are coming," declares the Lord. That's that's the first individual in this contract, God himself. Uh, he, I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. There, there you have the participants in the covenant. Israel, and, and he, here he, he uh, and Jeremiah, of course, when he wrote this, uh, what he was saying was Judah and Israel because they had separated. Uh, that, that had happened, and they weren't one nation anymore. They were two separate nations. And so he, he delineates them that way. And, and he goes on to say, uh, I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Uh, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. So what he is saying here is he's saying, okay, here's the old covenant. I set it up w- with the combined House of Israel and Judah, when they were combined, uh, when I gave it to their fathers, uh, that is, when it came through Moses from the mountain, he's, he's, saying, he's saying, when did I do that? When He tells us when that covenant was established. That a covenant was established at the Exodus. Uh, that's uh, that's Exodus, Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. That's, that's when it happened. He's saying, I, and, he, and, he, and you notice how the language here is really interesting. When I took them by the hand mm-hmm. and I led them out. You know, it's like a parent with a child. That's the picture here. Uh, as, as, a, as, a, as a father, I took them by the hand and walked them across the street so that they didn't run in front of a car. And that's, that's literally what, what he's saying. Well, not literally, that's, but that's what he's saying here. He's saying, I took them by the hand. But the problem was, they broke the grip. And they ran off. Basically, God is saying, so I let them run. That's what he's saying. I let them run. That's the old covenant. They were unfaithful to the covenant. They broke it. That's, 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 that's the picture here. They broke the covenant. Oh, we're running out of time. Uh, so he says, he says, uh, but I'm not done. I didn't let him go forever. He says, he says in verse 10, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. And here he is combining them back together as one nation. And that, of course, includes the Gentile nations as well, because because the the entire everyone who operates by faith is a son of Abraham. That's that's the picture here, and and he he's talking about this this covenant in the days that are coming. He's going to make this new covenant. I think I think uh, uh, Jesus' words at the communion come into play here in Matthew twenty six twenty eight. He says, "For this is for this is my blood of the covenant." 
which is poured out for many in the forgiveness of sin. Uh, The new covenant applies broad scope to all of humanity who come to Christ in faith. That's, That's the picture here. They all, they all become the house of Israel, if you will, because they're all children of Abraham. Because Abraham by uh, children of faith is the idea here. And, and basically, the idea is, is that Israel was to be a kingdom of, of priests and a holy nation. Exodus 29, uh, they, were to, they were to love, uh, they were to obey the law with their heart, their soul, and their strength. Deuteronomy 5, 6. The law, but the problem with the law was it was external. It was a written document. It was external. It was external. But the new covenant, but the new covenant, on the other hand, is is very positive. Verse 10, for the new covenant I will make with the house of Israel in those days, declare the Lord. I will put, I will put, God will put in your mind and in your heart. He's going to write that covenant internally. It's not an external law. It's an internal agreement with you and God. That's the idea here. It becomes internal. It's internalized. Hebrews 4, 6 tells us that because of that, we're able to approach the throne of grace without any problem. Unlike the old days when, a, when there had to be, there had to be the, only the high priest could do it, it says you can do it. Every time you go in prayer, you go directly to God. That, that's the idea here. Revelation 14.1 and 22.4 tell us that he's going to write his name on your forehead. He knows who you are. He's marked you as his. Kind of speaks of election. But that's what he's done. He knows you personally. He sees you as his, belonging to him. And not only that, in Isaiah chapter, chapter 11, verse 9, he says, he says, They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of God as the water covers the seas. It's talking about eternity, the millennial, during the millennial reign and on. But uh, he's basically saying, they're going to know me too. In fact, he, he says here, he, he says here that there will be no, you know, I'll be out of a job. There will be no need for teachers because we're going to know God. And the idea here is not that, yeah, I know who God is. I know him. You know, it's a, an intimate knowledge because his law is internally written in my mind, in my heart. That's very different than having a piece of paper. That's, that's very different. Hebrews 2.4. Oh, excuse me. Habakkuk 2.4 had the same idea uh, as, as that's being, being taught here. Everybody shall know. That was it's a prophecy of the Old Testament. 
And then verse 12 goes on to say there's going to be the complete remission of sin. Uh, I will be merciful toward their iniquities. I will, I will remember their sin no more. That's a willful act on the part of God. God doesn't, isn't absent-minded. You know, he knows everything from the beginning to the end. So this is a willful act. I am going to, I am going to choose within myself to not remember this stuff. It's gone. That's a, that's a powerful statement when you think about it. I'm going to choose not to remember. That, that's, that's what he's saying here. I'm going to show mercy toward their iniquities, and I will remember them no more. And then he says this. In speaking of a new covenant, it makes the first one obsolete. You know, when you have a contract and the contract gets updated... The old contract terms no longer exist. The new contract terms are in effect. That's what this is saying. This new covenant is better. It, it, it is superior to the old. It replaces it. The old was a good contract, but this one's even better. This one has better terms. Incidentally, Jeremiah was calling this covenant new 600 years before it existed. And he says the old one is already becoming obsolete. It has necessity to be replaced. And it's getting ready to vanish. Five years, more or less, from the writing of this book, it vanished. Titus Epiphany and his army and his Roman legions marched into Jerusalem, and the temple, the priesthood, ended. And we haven't seen them since. That's, that's the picture here. That's the picture here. The old covenant needed to be replaced by a better one. Jesus, in the fullness of time, in God's timing, came and provided that. Jeremiah, 600 years later, or 600 years earlier, said, that's what God is going to do. And no longer is the law an external thing that we try to keep by in and of ourselves. It's an internal thing that is written in our hearts and mind, given the Holy Spirit in order to complete it. And God, by his choice, doesn't remember your sin. That's the covenant he's made now. That's better. Okay, we're late. But anyway, any comments or questions this morning? Okay, let's pray. Father God, we thank you. Uh, we thank you that we live under the new covenant. And Father, may we, uh, may we, may we remain joyfully gracious, gracious, uh, uh, joyfully remembering your graciousness, your mercy, your love toward us, and that you gave us this time period to live. That we can, we can see the work that Christ has done and accomplished in our own lives, and that we can know you. We can come to you this morning. You hear us. You receive us. You welcome us in as children. And Father, may we uh, never be forgetful of that, but always remember 
that you are our God and you are the one who redeemed us through the blood of Jesus. And as we go to the worship service this morning, prepare our hearts uh, to receive, receive again from your word. And may you be blessed and may you be glorified in everything. For we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.